Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. So we're trying something uh, unique today. This is a live uh, podcast from the Partners for Progress Conference in New Glasgow uh, uh, for the uh, Nova Scotia Regional Enterprise uh, Networks, which is being hosted by the uh, PICTO uh, Partnership. Um, and our guest today is Sean Frazier. Welcome back to the Insights Podcast, Sean. It's good to be here. The last time you were on the podcast, you were the Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship. Now you're the Minister of Housing, Infrastructure, and Communities. I guess you seem to have a hard time find, uh, keeping a job. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows where I'll end up next. <laughs> so, Minister, we've been talking a lot uh, over the past few days about immigration, uh, about attracting uh, newcomers to our communities and retaining them here. We wanted to ask you about your previous role as Minister of Immigration. So for a long time, this region has not received its share of the national inflow of immigrants. That has changed under, under your administration. Can you tell us why and what has changed from the national perspective that has led to more immigrants uh, settling in our region? Sure, and I think before I talk about what's led to a change from the national perspective, uh, this, this wasn't driven from Ottawa. This was driven by communities in Atlanta, Canada. Uh, going back to the Ivany Report uh, in 2014 and then subsequently provincial governments in uh, Atlanta, Canada in the years that followed decided that they wanted to embrace immigration as a growth strategy. Uh, I'm guessing everybody in this room is going to remember what was happening in Nova Scotia for 30 years leading up to the Ivany Report. Uh, everybody was moving away. Uh, myself uh, and my family uh, moved out west like so many people I went to high school with. I think about all my sisters, uh, that I've got five sisters at home and uh, we've got a, a doctor, a chiropractor, two teachers, an accountant, uh, with the exception of the accountant who moved to the city for work. Uh, everybody else, uh, they or their spouse had to move away to another province or to another country to find uh, an opportunity for them to pay off their student loans, set themselves up for success. Uh, what we ended up seeing in Pictou County was the closure of a local elementary school in River John. The mental health unit at the Aberdeen Hospital, when a psychiatrist left town, uh, ended up shutting down, and it caused really serious challenges. Um, what we saw was a change in approach initially at uh, provincial government's le levels, and then in 2015 when we came into government, uh, embraced the opportunity to create an Atlantic Canadian um, immigration program that's now a permanent feature of Canada's immigration system. And it was meant to speak to the opportunity that uh, communities and provincial governments were uh, jumping up down and down saying, we need this uh, if we're going to attract people who are going to power the workforce. Uh, so when you had willing partners who came together as part of the Atlantic growth strategy that was established not long after the 2015 election, uh, the one thing everybody was asking for uh, was targeted immigration programs that would allow us to buck a worrying demographic trend and to attract uh, workers in key sectors that were going to power the economy. Uh, so when you had uh, four provincial governments and the federal government pulling in the same direction in response to organizations and businesses at a community level, uh, it actually made it easy because the political will was there. Uh, the program design we uh, worked on for a couple of years, uh, but now we are, uh, we're cruising in a way we're not used to. Um, now we've got growth-oriented challenges. We need to make sure that the healthcare system can accommodate a larger population. We need to build more houses uh, to make sure we can benefit from that growth. Uh, but my experience has been uh, uniquely positive. And when I see uh, taking my daughter to skating lessons, uh, there's families from another part of the world who have kids who forgot their mittens out on the ice and the community comes and marches out to them. I think what an amazing experience it is for that family to be here, what an amazing experience it is for the businesses uh, that have hired the, the workers who've come here, and what an opportunity it is for our healthcare system to attract the people we need to provide the services and create the opportunities that's going to support our community for the next generation. So we, we do want to talk to you a little bit about housing, but before we get there, um, we've now been able to attract people to our region. The challenge now is retention. Do you have any thoughts or opinions on how we can better have higher rates of retention in, in this region? I do. Uh, and uh, look, I, I lived and breathed this for a couple of years when I was um, responsible for uh, immigration in Canada. Uh, and one of the things that I'm encouraged by is we are seeing an increase in retention with newcomers who come to Atlantic Canada in particular. Our ordinary immigration programs would usually see a retention rate year to year. It would be in the, the 70s, 70%, uh, 70%, 75%, 78% um, through 
the ordinary immigration programs. Uh, when we created an Atlantic-specific program, there was a couple of key features that we built into it with retention in mind. Uh, one was uh, the requirement that you uh, spend a year working for the employer that brought you here before you're eligible for permanent residency. And the second is your family gets to come. Uh, what we see when a person brings their family to a community, the kids go to school, they have an employer that they trust, that they have a positive experience with, uh, they don't come for a job. They, they come to build a, a new life and a home and a community. Um, when people have kids who are thriving in school, uh, a job in a new country that supports their family, uh, they fall in love with the place. Uh, this is an amazing place to call home, and I think we're going to get into some of the reasons why later. Uh, but what we've seen is the retention rate climbs from the mid to high 70s to the low to mid 90s. Uh, the retention rate for uh, people in Atlanta, Canada is higher now than it's ever been as a result uh, through this specific program. Um, there's a unique opportunity as well, what we've seen with certain post-secondary institutions uh, really doubling down on the international student program. Although the retention rate may not be as high, the number of young people who are choosing to stay in small town Atlanta, Canada is an incredibly encouraging trend. And I think we can do more to create a pathway for those people who come temporarily through the programs that have a proven track record to attract people and not just bring them here but keep Sean, given the uh, housing shortages, there have been calls for a pause in the number of immigrants coming to the country. Last year, I think we saw a million newcomers to the country. That included both permanent and temporary residents, including foreign students, uh, which put pressures on the housing uh, market, obviously. How do you respond to those calls? Uh, the answer to our housing challenges cannot be to become less welcoming towards newcomers. Uh, immigration is the greatest competitive advantage that Canada has. 100% uh, of our labor force growth comes from immigration. Nearly 100% of our population growth comes from immigration. If we were to dampen our enthusiasm for welcoming newcomers, we would pay for that for a generation. Um, we do need to do a better job of growing the absorptive capacity of communities to ensure that people who come here can succeed. There, in my view, uh, there are no uh, arguments to reduce the numbers of permanent residency, uh, but there are challenges that we need to address on temporary programs, including the International Student Program and including the Temporary Foreign Worker Program. So of that million or so, uh, we're moving by uh, 2025 to 500,000 new permanent residents a year. Almost 40% of those people are already in Canada. Uh, the people who come from another country, uh, and they're here as students, they're here as temporary workers, uh, and they're working in our healthcare system, working for businesses, making a difference. Um, the 60% who are coming from other countries uh, are often coming because they have family members here who already have a place to live. Uh, there are another group uh, who are coming in but are now taking advantage of regionalized programs that have been pushing people to uh, rural communities to Atlantic Canada where we've historically had a, a greater opportunity to uh, to absorb a larger number of people because we don't face the same pressures that bigger cities do or at least a couple of years we didn't. Um, on the temporary programs there are challenges that I think we need to overcome because they're not driven, the numbers that come in are not driven by a uh, target the federal government sets, they're driven by demand. Um, employers who can demonstrate they can't find a Canadian worker can hire a temporary foreign worker but we don't put a cap on that number. Um, international students are, are driven by the numbers that colleges and universities will accept. Uh, and they love the program because uh, A, it adds to the diversity of their campus, but B, they can charge a higher tuition fee and it helps sustain the operations for domestic students as well. Um, my view is that we need to put the responsibility uh, or share the responsibility with the businesses or institutions who are benefiting from these temporary programs by saying if you're going to welcome a large number of international students, uh, perhaps you should be responsible in part to house them. Um, I don't think that's too much to ask when you realize that there's certain institutions who now have 75% of their student body made up of foreign students and are charging uh, extraordinarily high tuition rates to say use some of the, uh, the revenue you're generating to actually provide housing so you're not bringing in people who will compete with local community members, which can create a very ugly conversation at a community level in different parts of Canada. Um, it's tough for me as the uh, federal, uh, former federal minister 
because the federal government actually doesn't um, uh, is not in control of which institutions have access to the program. Uh, provincial governments uh, identify designated learning institutes, and Nova Scotia has not had a big problem with this, by the way. Uh, we've seen an explosion in numbers at Cape Breton University, but my sense is it's been generally a positive thing for Atlantic Canada. Uh, but we are getting to a point where we need to work together with institutions uh, and insist that they too have a role to provide housing. We're actually um, uh, launching uh, just the last month or so a trusted partner model where we'll give preferred access to study permit processing for institutions that have a long history of treating students well and who provide housing for the students. Uh, so I don't think we need to um, uh, dampen our enthusiasm for immigration, uh, but I do think we need to share the responsibility between levels of government, businesses, and institutions to provide for the people who are going to benefit those institutions and businesses who bring them here. I just want to mention one of the podcasts that we had was with Jim Irving, who uh, their company have, have recruited overseas, uh, and they, they, they do a really good job on settlement. They actually provide housing for some of those people coming over. So there are some, some people already doing that. Uh, prior to the recent ramp up in the number of immigrants coming to Canada, uh, you know, population growth had been a very manageable 1% really for decades. I mean, I look back at numbers, I think going back to the 1950s, it was like, who figured this out? Nice straight line going up, very manageable. In the past year, the population, I think, grew nearly 3% or something like that, right? So what, in your view, is a sustainable rate of population growth for the country looking forward? What's the percentage that we can manage comfortably? So I, I actually don't think that there is a magic number because your ability to welcome people depends on decisions you take to accommodate a, a growing population. So Canada's population for a developed economy is growing faster than every other advanced economy in the world. Um, this is the reason that we have not landed in a technical recession post-COVID. Um, we are continuing to see economic growth. Think about the conversations we were having a year and a half ago about the labor shortage in our communities. Um, the businesses that we uh, supported through the pandemic with many billions of dollars of public spending to keep them afloat were all at risk of closing if we didn't continue to allow them to have access to the labor that they needed to continue their operations. Um, what the challenge is now is that we are seeing communities who have very, very low vacancy rates when it comes to housing. We are seeing provinces and communities across the country who are concerned about their ability to provide health care. Those are the two big areas that I'm concerned with. But you can ask yourself, look, what's the absolute number of people we can welcome? You have to ask yourself, at what point is it too costly to grow the absorptive capacity that that outstrips the benefits of the newcomers that you welcome? Uh, my sense is the we're right now we're welcoming about the historic average of people that have come to Canada since Confederation. It is not to me uh, an extraordinarily high number, though it may seem like that compared to um, the last number of years. Um, so my sense is you just have to decide, do you want to be a high growth country? And if you do, you have to make the investments that will allow you to benefit from being a high growth country. Or do you want to be a, a low to medium growth country? Uh, and lose out on the economic opportunities that others will, uh, will beat you on uh, by virtue of them attracting the most skilled people in the world. Uh, so if we want to advance programs to attract tech workers, healthcare workers, transportation workers, agricultural workers, and skilled tradespeople, um, we just need to make sure that we're building houses quickly enough to accommodate them. So you have to look at both sides of the ledger. Uh, my sense is we're in about the right space right now because we're, we're seeing that we're maxing out but not exceeding um, the number of people that the workforce actually needs to help grow economies and provide services to people. And if you dr drive your immigration programs not by a magic number but by meeting social and economic needs, then you'll figure out what the right number is year to year. But then you have to go and provide communities with the capacity to help uh, successfully integrate newcomers. Yeah, I mean, my sense of it is that, that people are confusing temporary and permanent uh, uh, immigration, right? So the, the million, I think it's almost a million now, Don, on the temporary side, it's not combined a million. But that million is not growing every year. It's, it's, it's a number that, it's temporary. So the real number we need to look at, I think, is the permanent uh, number. And then we use temporary workers to support, um, to support the labor market <coughs> and students to support our, our post-secondary education. Um, Minister, you became the Minister of Housing, Infrastructure and Communities in July of this year. Can you just give us a little bit of an understanding of what that role is? Uh, 
Yeah, uh, so I'm responsible for uh, federal policy that impacts uh, uh, home building and uh, supporting people who have housing needs. Uh, and I'm also responsible for uh, the federal government's uh, infrastructure investments. Uh, we've actually merged the two uh, through a piece of legislation that was tabled two days ago uh, to create a single department of housing and infrastructure, which I think will allow us to better integrate our policies with the view of building communities. Because houses and homes are, are, are not just places for people to be stored when they go to bed at night. Uh, they're places for people to live as part of complete communities where they can thrive. And I think coupling housing and infrastructure is going to help. Uh, more specifically, um, my, my job right now is to build a uh, federal housing strategy. So we're putting all of the policies in one place that will allow us uh, to get more homes built. Uh, we're dealing with a scenario in Canada right now where we have about 16 and a half million homes today. Uh, we need to add almost 6 million more homes in the next six years or so uh, in order to restore a level of affordability that existed when I was finishing high school at East Picto here. Um, currently, we're near the record pace of home building, about a quarter million new homes every year, and we probably need to um, triple or better uh, that pace if we're going to achieve that goal. Um, most people will say it's not going to happen on that timeline. If it takes a few extra years, uh, that's okay. Uh, but uh, every extra home we build is going to help restore that, um, those costs. And in this period of um, high inflation that hopefully we're coming out of, knock wood, um, it, it's extremely important because what's happening at a household level, uh, when you look at a family's bottom line, is, is a frightening thing when you're dealing with increased rents, increased mortgage costs. Uh, so my job is to try to get it under control, uh, but priority number one is uh, build more homes and build them by the millions. So you may have already told us, but what has been your biggest learning so far in your short tenure? Um, it's tough because there's a lot. Um, it's uh, just e every day I, I'm uh, flooded with information and new perspectives. Um, but the biggest learning that I have is that um, this is a solvable problem. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a big, we, we have the bad habit, I think, as a society of making problems seem complicated just because they're big. Um, it's not an easy thing to, to think about how you're going to build six million homes in seven years or, or so. Um, but if you actually start breaking down the challenges, that the solutions are apparent in virtually every community. Communities know what they need, businesses know what they need, and you just have to listen to them. Um, when you talk to home builders, they'll tell you that the uh, cost of material, labor, supplies, land, interest is making it impossible to build. Uh, so we can advance policies that will reduce the cost of building, like the waiver of GST for new apartments, the low-cost financing programs we have in place, making federal lands available to reduce the input costs. Uh, when you talk to people who work in the nonprofit sector, they'll say for 30 years the federal government didn't invest in affordable housing. Uh, lo and behold, uh, we now have homelessness challenges. Um, we started investing in affordable housing again with billions of dollars that have now added hundreds of thousands of uh, units for low-income families, but we're going to take some time to pay it off. I look, uh, there's people in the room who have home building factories going up here in Pictou County. Uh, we can't build homes the way that we did 100 years ago. Uh, we don't build cars the way we did 100 years ago, and now we can produce them much more quickly. Uh, we need to embrace innovation to build more homes. So every big problem is made up of these smaller constituent problems, and if we can identify the solutions to those small problems, we'll fix the big thing. Uh, but the number one thing that I, I can uh, say I've learned is that um, uh, though we are in a crisis situation nationally when it comes to housing, uh, it is a crisis we can overcome. So um, one of the things that seems unclear to the public is which level of government is ultimately responsible for housing in The Canada. mayor of New Glasgow is personally <laughs> responsible. <laughs> um, so where does that, where, where, what's the, what's, I guess, what's the role now in terms of where you fit, where the province fits, where the municipalities fit? So um, it, everybody's got a role to play. Uh, and it's, look, it, technically speaking, if you review Section 91 of the Constitution, you will see largely that housing would fall into uh, provincial government's jurisdiction. But there are clearly impacts of federal policy on housing. Uh, municipalities who are creatures of the province uh, have the uh, uh, level of local authority when it comes to land use, when it comes to permitting. Uh, so municipalities, provincial governments, technically have the, the main responsibility, but we absolutely have a role to play at the federal government. 
in addition to being responsible for population growth through immigration, uh, we also make investments to generate industrial growth that can support the factories that I'm talking about. Uh, I believe absolutely, despite the fact it might technically be in the jurisdiction of another government, that if we uh, choose not to use the federal spending power to invest in housing, uh, particularly in affordable housing, we know the result will be um, widespread housing shortages that will lead to homelessness and high prices in the long term. So even in areas where it may not be technically our jurisdiction, uh, it's our responsibility to avoid predictable and serious social consequences that would otherwise manifest if we don't make these kinds of investments. Uh, so from our perspective, we need to have uh, a national housing strategy. We need to, and it needs to be backed by serious investments that will build more homes. Uh, so anybody tells you, hey, that's not my responsibility, it's somebody else's, uh, is shirking their responsibilities because every role of government has a, every level of government has a role to play uh, in addition to the nonprofit sector and the private sector in building more homes. Uh, there's been a growing problem, as you mentioned, of home homelessness across the country. Uh, it's evident everywhere. Um, it seems very, also very evident that there's been insufficient investment in social housing for a long time. Trying to, it's hard to figure out why that got lost in the shuffle. What is the uh, federal government doing to remedy the problem of homelessness? Um, th thanks. So. The, there's a need to respond in an acute way to people who are in need, and there's a need to put forward systemic solutions that will build out sufficient housing stock to eliminate homelessness in the long term, or at least chronic homelessness. Um, so in the acute phase, we have a program called Reaching Home uh, that has allocations to mostly cities, but sometimes it's large organizations, service providers who work with uh, populations who... Uh, are, are literally going to sleep without a roof over their head uh, or who have uh, no security of tenure with a place that they can rely on. Um, the Reaching Home program has allocations for typically those bigger cities, but application-based processes for smaller communities that have challenges um, that may not be permanent but that they need to respond to. Um, the program has been well received by um, advocates in the nonprofit sector who work in this space, but they can use more money, uh, no question. Um, but while we have the uh, acute response to the challenges that we're dealing with, um, the long-term solution is going to be investing in affordable housing. The reality, and there's a lot of commonly held misconceptions about this, homelessness isn't driven by a person's ancestry, it's not uh, determined by mental health and addictions, it's not determined by poverty, it's determined by a lack of affordable housing options for people. Nobody chooses to be homeless. Nobody would prefer to be in a shelter. Um, the experience globally in communities that have affordable housing vacancies is that the typical, it's, it's rare for a person to stay in a shelter for more than two weeks when there's an option to be housed permanently. Um, through a mix of uh, affordable housing construction programs and subsidies for communities and for low-income families to make sure that they can afford a place to live, um, we can uh, eliminate homelessness. And the, the stopping short of that as a goal would be a moral failure, in my opinion. Um, the problem that we're running into is initially in the late 80s, but m disproportionately in the early 90s, as a part of the effort to reduce federal spending to get our finances in check, which needed to happen, um, there was one big mistake made, in my opinion, that we're paying for today. And uh, the federal programs that built social housing in Canada were all cut. Uh, and for 30 years, successive governments, both liberal and conservative, I should say, uh, chose not to invest in housing. And there is a, a direct and predictable consequence to the exact number of homes that we're missing today that would have been built if we had maintained the existing tra spending track on housing that existed in the early 90s. Um, we need to get back into this space. Uh, we, in 2017, we started with the National Housing Strategy, uh, but it's going to take years to catch up for 30 years of not making these investments. And though I, don't, I do think we need to be mindful of, of how much we're spending as a government, particularly in this post-pandemic era, um, investing in housing is actually deflationary when you have a supply shortage. Um, the cost, uh, first of all, if you have supply and demand that meet one another in terms of the, uh, the market, you're going to see the cost come down for families. But the social cost of letting people be homeless is unbelievable. 
Uh, people who don't have a place to sleep at night run into challenges with the healthcare system far more often. They go to the emergency room far more often. They develop addictions far more often. They run into problems with the justice system, with the police far more often. And most importantly, they don't have the opportunity to search for a job to be well to support their families when they're worried about whether they're going to sleep that night. If we actually build out the housing stock that will make sure everyone in Canada has a place to go to bed at night with a roof over their head where they're safe, uh, it will be one of the most transformational economic policies we can imagine because those people that we're currently recruiting overseas to fill key gaps in the labour force uh, will still want to welcome uh, uh, an ambitious number, no doubt, uh, but the actual need for people in the economy will be diminished because there will be a group of healthy people who are able to pursue opportunities for themselves and their families uh, if they're not spending every spare moment they have trying to figure out where they can go to bed at night. Do you have an estimate of the number of housing units we might need to deal with the homeless, current homelessness problem that we have? Um, sort of. Um, so it, it's going to do, and it varies enormously community to sure. community. So it, national targets for housing are a challenge because the housing markets are local. Um, and if we put the homes in the wrong place, we won't cure the problem nationally. So we have to make sure we're building locally. So. We currently have a little bit less than 4% of that 16.5 million I mentioned in Canada. It operates outside of the market. So we, there's market-based homes that you rent an apartment, you buy a house, you're in the market, and that's how the vast majority of housing in Canada operates. Um, less than 4% are offered outside of the market where the governments have subsidized housing to provide a place for low-income families to live, often geared to their income, so you're, you're able to pay regardless of how much money you earn. Um, the average for developed economies in the world is 8%. So we are less than half the average. So if we added to our housing stock of 16.5 million, that um, five and a half, six million we need to solve the, the total number that we're, we're gunning for, uh, and we double it to 8%, uh, we're going to be looking at somewhere in the ballpark of, um, look, finger in the air, test the wind, uh, about two million. Uh, uh, affordable housing units that we need. Um, we currently have less than half that. Uh, so we are, pro and look, some people will say the numbers are far greater, but I, I think if we're dealing with an additional million, million and a half uh, affordable housing units, that's when we're getting to a, a space where we're actually going to be, um, we're going to be solving the challenges uh, that we're seeing uh, for low-income families that don't have a place to go. Uh, but we, we can't just solve the one piece because if we then don't actually build up the supply in the market, in addition to non-market, uh, we're still going to have significant affordability challenges, uh, both for low-income families and for middle-class families that are competing in the market for homes uh, that don't exist in a large enough number uh, for them to find for themselves and their families. Well, you've already mentioned the you know, lack of supply to, uh, you know, um the general population, especially in terms of affordability issues. In talking with developers, uh, we noted that, you know, they mentioned the interest rates, the increased cost of materials and labor, as well as the level of taxation uh, and regulations, which has become a common theme, are adding to the challenges of perform, uh, providing affordable housing in Canada. The, fed the federal government recently removed its portion of GST off the housing sector for some um, components and uh, the, the province of Nova Scotia followed suit, which was really helpful. Uh, your government recently induced, introduced its housing accelerator fund with a commitment of $4 billion in funding until 26-27. Can you tell us what the key goals of this fund is and what is the expected timeline associated with these goals? Sure. Um, so look, I, I highlighted a couple of the challenges that we need to overcome if we're going to solve the big problem. I mentioned making the math work for builders. I mentioned investing in affordable housing. I mentioned innovation to get homes built in factories. Uh, we also need to change the way that uh, municipal governments build homes, or, or in some instances, don't build homes. Um, and look, when I say build homes, what I'm really referring to is zoning for home building and permitting homes to be built, because uh, most municipalities don't actually build the homes themselves. Um, the Housing Accelerator Fund was designed to uh, incentivize municipal reforms that will result in more homes being built across Canada. I see a few folks with applications in the system that we expect to have decisions made very soon on. Um, the, um, uh, but the, the goal is to uh, in, uh, put federal funding on the table to incentivize 
um, administrative uh, improvements, red tape reduction, and an increase in ambition in terms of how we zone for housing. Um, one of the major problems that I've come to understand across Canada, and this is part of those big learnings, is um, uh, it's not legal to build the kinds of homes in most neighborhoods in Canada that will actually allow us to solve the national housing crisis. The vast majority of Canadian neighborhoods only allow single family homes. If we maintain that municipal framework across Canada, we will never, never solve the national housing crisis. Um, what you end up seeing, if you've got in a big urban environment in Toronto or Vancouver, uh, a neighborhood that's zoned for single family homes, the people who would like to live there are going to continue to move further and further and further out. And that's going to, at a certain point in time, just continue to either drive up costs or create such a degree of urban sprawl that we'll never be able to afford the infrastructure that's going to pay for people to live in communities. Um, the Housing Accelerator Fund, and we've established a list of best practices we posted online for municipalities to go to, including allowing somebody, if they own a piece of property in a housing crisis, to build a small apartment with four units on it without having to go to your local municipal council uh, to have a zoning change in your neighborhood. Uh, what we're seeing is municipalities are incentivizing affordable housing construction with the federal money that we're putting on the table. We're seeing them adopt e-permitting process so you can get the building permit far more quickly than you otherwise would be able to do. Uh, we're seeing uh, municipalities say if we're going to uh, get federal money for a major transit station, uh, rapid bus transit or a, a subway station, whatever it might be, uh, you better have big apartments uh, around it because we can't afford to build it, the infrastructure like that into communities where people aren't going to live. Uh, and if we make those investments in transit, uh, we need to make sure that the transit can be self-sustaining and the people who live there um, uh, should be living uh, densely enough that they can actually support the, uh, the, the projects that we build. Um, what we've seen so far has blown me away. Uh, the goal was over the next uh, three, four years to have the fund result in 100,000 additional units nationally. Uh, we've signed 11 agreements to date, and uh, so far with the first 11, uh, one province and 10 cities, uh, the estimates over, the, over a 10-year time horizon uh, is that it's going to result in more than a quarter million homes built disproportionately where services already exist, where we don't have to build out that additional infrastructure because people are zoning to allow for um, more small, medium-sized apartments in communities and more big apartments near transit. Now, this doesn't mean every neighborhood in Canada is going to just be apartments. This is not what we're trying to achieve. Uh, but it means where somebody has the means to uh, build an apartment uh, uh, or to um, uh, build for more people, we just don't want to make that illegal. Um, it doesn't seem uh, too radical to me to try to legalize housing in the middle of a housing crisis. <laughs> We started with cannabis, now it's housing. <laughs> I see that. <laughs> so what has been the impact uh, of the fund so far here in Nova Scotia? Has it been good uptake? Uh, so in terms of applications, yeah. Uh, in terms of agreements, there's been one in Nova Scotia, but that's a function of us starting with the 30 of the fastest growing cities in Canada. We're the first ones to have their applications considered. Halifax, obviously, being the second fastest growing in Canada. Uh, was one of the first uh, deals that we concluded. Uh, so Halifax is, um, uh, over the next decade, we expect to see almost 10,000 new homes in the city as a result of a $79 million investment. And they're doing all the things that we're asking. They're uh, zoning as of right that you can build a fourplex anywhere you want in HRM. Uh, they are building more densely near post-secondary institutions and uh, near services, near transit, uh, near economic opportunities. They're establishing a team within HRM to work on exclusively affordable housing. Um, the next round of, of uh, applicants will, uh, that we're going through uh, will be sort of the large cities, which uh, um, unthinkably includes uh, large rural municipalities just because it's population-based, uh, and then we'll go to smaller communities where we see disproportionately uh, our part of um, uh, the province represented in terms of applications. So it's going to be very competitive. We've got um, uh, many dozens of applications just from Atlanta, Canada, uh, that are trying to tap into the funds. And despite the fact that we've got $4 billion, uh, the, the needs are far greater. Um, but we expect, um, look, if all goes well, uh, we'll be weeks away from making decisions and then rolling out sort of announcements once we sign formal agreements with the successful applicants. Okay. You reminded us, us earlier that the municipalities are the creatures of the province. Um, sometimes the province gets, a, provincial governments get a little cranky when you bypass them and go directly to municipalities. Uh, how do you respond to that criticism? 
I uh, was chatting with uh, Mike Savage, the mayor of Halifax, and uh, this was in the news. Doug Ford took a swipe at me, and I actually get along with Doug Ford just fine. Like we have a good working relationship. Um, but he was very upset in the news. There was a big press conference, and Mike Savage um, uh, said, "How dare you fund the groups we were never going to fund?" Um, and the reality is, um, uh, if if we want to have uh, a good working relationship with provincial governments, like. The premiers almost all have my phone number. Um, that I didn't hear one criticism uh, of our approach of working directly with cities before I saw it in a national press conference. Uh, I think some of the uh, frustration that they're seeing is for the first time in a few years, uh, there's been progress on housing uh, through the Housing Accelerator Fund. And my sense is provincial governments want to be a part of that success. Uh, but the irony is all of the things we're incentivizing municipalities to do through federal funding, provincial governments could have legislated all of these changes had they wanted to. In fact, the province of British Columbia is doing just that. Um, my sense is if uh, provinces want to work together, we can, we can work together. But in the meantime, that should not foreclose on the possibility that we can incentivize change at a municipal level with federal funding. Um, this is... This is a crisis situation that is presenting one of the biggest bottlenecks to economic growth in Canada right now. If we don't build houses, we will not have a successful economy in Canada. The idea that we should slow down on something that's working so we can uh, save face uh, with different levels of government is crazy to me. Um, if the, the train is moving in the right direction, like get on board, don't try to uh, stop it before it gets to the station. Makes sense. You know, there's a lot of players in the housing market, like CMHC as an example. Uh, I'm interested in understanding what role uh, does CMHC play in the government's uh, national housing strategy? Can, can you tell me what they, what they contribute to that strategy? They, they administer almost the whole thing. Um, so that's uh, an oversimplification because there's players in communities, uh, both in the market and in the nonprofit sector, who have a big role to play. There are bilateral agreements we have with provincial governments, uh, but the actual applications that we receive to tap into the programs are run through CMHC. Uh, so the Housing Accelerator Fund, uh, if you're successful, you're going to get a phone call um, uh, from CMHC to hash out the details of the agreement. Uh, if you are a builder who wants to tap into our low-cost financing programs, you're going to be dealing with CMHC. Uh, they run mortgage insurance uh, programs that have actually um, uh, supported projects in, in Pictou County um, that, uh, that are run through CMHC. And when you apply for our grants for affordable housing, it's run through CMHC. Uh, they're an organization that was initially started in, in part to build more homes when people came home from the, uh, from the war. Um, but over time, as governments ceased to make investments in housing, uh, they took on more of um, a role of as essentially a financial institution where they would assess risk and sell mortgage insurance into the market. Um, and then in 2017, they had to get back into the space of administering these home building programs. Uh, but we're, what we're seeing right now is despite some frustrations with the process that I have and that's particular to uh, small communities, um, they are now responsible for the addition of um, many hundreds of thousands of homes in the past seven years as a result of the programs. So it's, it's imperfect. It's a little bit clunky. The administrative process needs to be cleaned up, and we're working on that now. Uh, but um, their, their role is largely to administer these programs and to also um, um, more or less run the mortgage insurance uh, market in, in Canada. Uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, that we need to do home construction differently. Um, one of the things that we had, we covered in our podcast was uh, mass timber. Yeah. There's, a pro there's a proposal people haven't heard in East Hands to build a mass timber factory. It's a big, it's a big number, I forget what the number is, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, but is there anything that your government is doing to promote sort of manufactured, um, on-site manufactured homes? Uh, yes, uh, and we've supported a number of uh, home building factories in Atlanta, Canada, disproportionately through ACOA, um, which is our regional development agency. I expect, given uh, who's in the room, that you guys will all be familiar with ACOA. Um, this is something that we need to uh, put into hyperdrive, in my opinion. So mass timber is an incredible technology, and we have an incredible Canadian resource where we can actually help create jobs in the forestry sector. We can have climate-friendly housing. 
which is important because buildings are actually the third largest contributor to emissions in Canada. Uh, and it's also one of the safest and fastest way to build homes. Um, but mass timber, modular housing, I know there's modular players in the room here that um, uh, could use additional support through training so they can actually uh, continue to produce but get homes built more quickly uh, on site. Um, the, um, and these are all creating jobs in our communities, by the way, as well. Uh, good jobs that are uh, safe work environments where people get paid fairly and, and paid well to, to solve a major social problem. So to me, this is a, a big part of what we need to do going forward. Uh, but panelization technology to get more buildings up, modular housing to build more quickly, mass timber to build quickly, safely, and efficiently. And the other piece that's really exciting is, is um, 3D printing is actually taking off and will be economic in the next number of years uh, once they, they're able to hit a, a scale. Um, the way that we support them is to create certain uh, incentives that exist for all home building that they can tap into to allow them to benefit from the low-cost financing, but then to have direct targeted support through federal government uh, subsidy programs or, or financing programs designed for businesses. Um, my sense is the best tool is probably going to remain regional development agencies because housing markets are local and because RDAs tend to know uh, who the players are in any given sector and can actually reach in uh, to, um, uh, to the shop floor of a given business. So I, I think the, the big massive grants that you see going to um, or loans to um, major industrial hubs and uh, EV battery factories or uh, auto manufacturing is not the right model for home building because it needs to exist at a more regional or localized level and uh, doesn't necessarily take many billions of dollars, but when you're dealing with hundreds of millions and an opportunity to grow jobs in a regional market, my sense is in addition to tax incentives or training incentives we may have in place, uh, RDAs are probably the, um, the path forward. Uh, the other question I wanted to ask you is, uh, I know that the government has certain programs that, that are available for individuals to help with housing affordability. Can you outline uh, what those programs are, Sean? Um, yeah, so there are, there's a few different ones, and, and there's different programs targeted at different social needs. Uh, so, and, and uh, most often where we run these programs, uh, if it's not through our, our uh, tax system, it's typically through um, uh, a partnership with a different level of government. Uh, so, for example, uh, we have the uh, Canada Housing Benefit, and that is a program that we have established to provide direct subsidies to low-income families to help with the cost of, of housing. Uh, we sign agreements with different provincial governments to roll this money out uh, in a way that will actually be tailored to the needs of people in more localized communities. Uh, I mentioned the Reaching Home program. Uh, there are funds that can be uh, delivered to help support very vulnerable people. Uh, who are in need of uh, services or rent supplements. We have similar programs designed for uh, veterans who've served who have housing needs to prevent uh, veterans' homelessness. By the way, there are uh, nearly 3,000 uh, uh, veterans in this country who are homeless today, which to me is completely unacceptable. Um, there are other programs that we uh, have designed to make uh, home buying more affordable for somebody who's trying to get into the market for the first time. Uh, there's a generational fairness issue right now when you're looking at people who are now looking to downsize, particularly in bigger cities, who may have bought their home for uh, $100,000 and it may now be worth $3 million depending on what neighborhood you're in. Uh, and uh, that family's kids and, and their kids will never be able to afford a home where they grew up. Uh, we created the First Home Savings Account, which is a, a tax-free savings account that allows young people to uh, put money away uh, up to the first $40,000 so they can save up for a down payment. Um, there's other programs that we've just announced uh, in the fall economic statement two weeks ago uh, that have pulled in the industry standards all into one place in the form of a mortgage charter for people who are in the market now to understand what they should be entitled to when they go to their banks. Uh, if you're distressed because uh, you're borrowing and the rate of interest has gone up and you can't afford the monthly payment, you should be talking to your bank about getting a longer amortization period. If you have the means to pay off more of your mortgage before it comes up time for renewal, you should be able to do that without penalty so you're not going to be paying a higher uh, monthly bill uh, when the rate of interest goes up if you can bring the principal down. There's a series of other measures we put in place. Uh, but the other big thing that we need to do, and, and this is less of an incentive directly for individuals, uh, we need to bring the cost of renting an apartment down in Canada. 
Um, in a lot of places in Canada, it's now $3,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. Um, there's students who are being asked to pay that, who are not working, who are, who are it's, it's, it's impossible. And the idea that somebody's going to be able to save up enough money for a down payment when they're looking at a $3,000 a month apartment when they're a student is not realistic. One of the best things we can do to help young people get into the market is reduce the cost of rent while they're young so they can save up that down payment. Uh, but that's not going to happen through direct government subsidies. That's going to be happening through uh, incentives in the market that uh, put supply and demand in, in a similar place so we can actually bring the price of rent, renting an apartment down in Canada. In January, you introduced a, a law basically preventing non-Canadians from purchasing residential properties for a two-year period. What was, the, what was the purpose of that and what has the impact been to date? So the, the purpose uh, was to uh, deal with the demand side of the equation. Um, what we've ended up, uh, and it's, it's hard because we don't yet have good data on it, uh, but we do see a phenomenon in different parts of Canada where people who are not resident in Canada uh, buy homes in Canada because uh, it's a good investment. Uh, and I don't think homes are a commodity. I think they're a place for families to live. Uh, if somebody wants to, you see it more in condo buildings. It's, it's more, it's uh, disproportionately an issue in, in big urban environments. Uh, but you do see uh, some examples of people who will pre-buy units in condominium buildings with the purpose of holding on to them because they've seen the price of real estate in Canada skyrocket over the last number of years. Uh, we want it to disincentivize uh, the opportunity for somebody to treat a new home like a commodity uh, by pulling that demand out of the market. There's been so much changing in the landscape, it's hard to know the exact impact that that measure has had. There were some problems with the rollout that thankfully we've corrected because um, uh, temporary residents were excluded and when you have a psychiatrist in Cape Breton who's trying to buy a home and they're told they're not allowed to, uh, guess what the psychiatrist does? Uh, they leave <laughs> Canada. Uh, so we, um, we, we've had to make changes to the rules because there were some challenges with the rollout. Uh, but um, we should, I, I expect, in the next uh, number of months, have a better assessment based on data uh, as to whether and to what extent it's been successful. Uh, but for the time being, uh, the, the ban was really on that uh, speculative investment that uh, foreign investors were making, uh, not to buy a place to live, uh, but to hang on to a place, whether there was somebody living in it or not. Right. Um, you talked earlier about using federal land. Uh, you mentioned that earlier. I want to ask you about that. Canada Lands Corporation recently announced plans to make available lands for affordable housing. Can you tell us a little bit about the scope and scale of that and the timelines? Uh, yeah, uh, this is an enormous frustration for me. And um, I, look, I see representatives from the, the town here. There's federal lands in this community that people have been trying to unlock for years and can't. And it's been something I've been taking a run at. It's something different community organizations have taken a run at. Um, so f first I'll tell you why the part that works and then I'll, I'll elaborate on my frustrations. Um, the reason we want to do this is it's really expensive to buy homes. If you have federal land you can make available at a reasonable price. You can reduce the input cost for somebody who's going to build a development which allows them to make homes available at a relatively lower price than otherwise would have been the case. Um, the challenges that we have with this program, and the, the recent announcement was to unlock a, a pipeline of pr identified properties that we know, and we expect over the next five, six years, uh, there's going to be an additional 29,000 homes built on those specific properties. Um, since 2016, uh, that program has led to about 10,200 homes on federal lands across Canada so far. And there's separately a program that uh, I'm responsible for uh, that's purely designed for affordable housing, the Federal Lands Initiative that will add another 3,900 by fiscal year 27-28. Um, and then that's on track uh, to, to, uh, to meet those numbers. The challenges that we have when we try to get rid of a piece of land federally are unbelievable. And we can fix this problem. I am committed to fixing this problem. I see folks from Summer Street who've been through this. I see folks from the town who've been through this. Um, first, you can't divest a piece of federal land without doing a constitutionally required um, uh, consultation process with Indigenous communities. We cannot and must not try to get around that. Uh, we must do it the right way because if you fail to do it, courts will shut you down and it will take longer. And it's the right thing to do. Um, 
where I think we can speed up the process is after you do that, we have to offer lands to provincial governments who have a period of time where they can assess whether they want it. Then we have to offer it to municipalities and then we can go out to the market. Um, and all of the programs are designed right now as much to recapitalize the budgets of government departments who are unloading these properties rather than to get homes built. So this creates a scenario where you're dampening uh, the uh, market forces uh, that would be uh, trying to snap these properties up more quickly because there's such a lengthy administrative process and sometimes a significant cost to buying the land. Um, what I would like to push things toward is actually saying, let's take proposals on homes, declared on properties um, uh, that are declared surplus or not, uh, but let's look at what we can actually do to enter into potentially long-term leases where we don't have to sell the land, uh, but we can allow somebody for the lifetime of a building to actually put a property up on it. And we could lease it for a dollar. It would be a zero cost to the federal government if we maintain the land. Uh, and we could create an opportunity for people to more quickly uh, take advantage of these opportunities. Uh, so this is the kind of thing that we're, we're trying to consider as to whether we can implement. Uh, but when I see that it can take seven, nine years to just get rid of a property, not even to build the home on it, but just to get rid of it, it demonstrates to me that we've got um, a, a process that has serious problems that we need to overcome. But uh, thankfully, I find myself in a position to try to do something about it. So that, just a second, that the idea of leasing it then for a dollar or whatever, can that then bypass those provincial and municipal and indigenous consultations? Uh, you, you will, if you're doing something on land that changes the purpose and use of the land and there is an indigenous interest in that land, you, you cannot overcome the constitutionally required uh, uh, consultation process for indigenous communities. A and frankly, you, you shouldn't try. It's the right thing to do and it will speed up the process to put in the work at the outset. Uh, if we're not selling the land, I believe that we can, and there's people who have technical legal arguments that would disagree with me, but I am confident in my own technical legal arguments, um, that we actually could bypass uh, other portions of that process. Uh, so if we can shrink what's currently a seven to nine year process down to uh, an 18 month process, or even work with indigenous leadership who has an interest to allow them to be part of the solution, uh, we could potentially shrink that process further. Uh, so my sense is there are creative solutions that we should examine. There will be challenges if we try to have a sea change in our approach to go down this path. There will be institutional inertia that will fight against you, and that's the case in government. Uh, but I think we can overcome it, and I think we can make um, thousands of properties available federally that we're not currently getting our highest and best use out of uh, by accelerating this process, uh, including by even converting government offices that are underused to, uh, uh, to housing developments. There's, there's creative solutions out there, and uh, we're, we're working on a plan to uh, create more of them now. The CAO of uh, New Glasgow was telling me yesterday that there's a DND building downtown here that's been sitting uh, vacant for decades. Yeah. And they can't seem to get it converted. Can you help with that? <laughs> yeah, as if she's not asked me that before. <laughs> um, so look, perhaps more now than I could before. Um, it's, it's, so this is, it's a perfect example. Uh, so when we first had this conversation, I thought, super, I'm gonna call the Minister of Defense, we'll free that property up, we're gonna uh, get it out in the community, it'll be awesome. It turns out it's harder than that. Um, there's, uh, r right now, in fact, there's such a pipeline of federal properties in the process uh, that uh, with the current staffing levels we have in the bureaucracy with the existing process, even if everybody said yes to every step, it would still be years to unlock property just because of, of how backed up the pipeline is. Uh, if we change the process, uh, we, we could do it far more easily. Uh, when I was thinking of this, there was, there was two properties actually on my mind, uh, one, one next to Summer Street and the, um, uh, the other here in, in uh, the town of New Glasgow uh, downtown. And um, it's a perfect example. Like, th think about a property uh, on the riverfront in a healthy community that's a hub in northern Nova Scotia. Uh, it's an eyesore, and it has an opportunity to be an incredible uh, commercial or residential development for the community. I don't want to prejudge what the right thing to do with the property is, but I can tell you having a, a, vac a vacant uh, federal eyesore is, is not the right use for the property. Um, there's nobody's going to use that property, but I know government departments who have property always think, particularly DND, hey, maybe if we needed the property for future operations, 
it's not going to happen in that location. Um, and when you don't have local knowledge, uh, it's really hard to convince the bureaucracy just to, to pull this one out uh, because they're getting arguments from every community in Canada that that property is unique and special. Uh, but what that says to me is there's actually opportunities in properties like that in every community in Canada uh, to actually do something meaningful. But my sense is we need to have a shift in the process. Uh, rather than uh, going through a divestment process and not asking what to do with it, uh, my sense is we should almost have um, reversed the process and say, has anybody got an idea to do with uh, on federal lands something that's productive for your community? And then pick the best project and prioritize that one for divestment uh, rather than just going in the order that the projects have come in. But th these are the kinds of things that we're trying to move and it's kind of like turning the Titanic, it's a one degree at a time. Uh, but uh, hopefully we can get to a place where we can have a, a bright line where we have a new process that will be much quicker. Well, thanks for recognizing New Glasgow as a hub. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> um, I talk about your hub model all the time, but yeah, I do. Okay, that's I do. good. <laughs> Let's turn to uh, Pictou County. Um, you were elected as an MP for Central Nova in 2015. You're a veteran now, aren't you? And you actually live in New Glasgow, so you know, you're a local boy. Uh, Pictou County has uh, many economic development challenges, uh, as many other smaller communities across our region, an aging workforce, some challenges growing the population, although some improvements there. You know this community well. What is your, in your view, are the most significant opportunities to increase prosperity in this community? Uh, this is literally my favorite thing to think about. Uh, like I, I that's why I left it to the end. That's right, that's right. Um, so I, I, I love Pictou County. Uh, I'm from, though I live in New Glasgow now, I'm, uh, I'm from Marigamish. Uh, those of you who don't know, rural community 20 minutes away. Uh, my wife's from New Glasgow, so now I live in New Glasgow. Um, <laughs> the, um, uh, I, so I, I love this place, and I think the strength of it is that other people will love this place too. Um, before I get into the sort of concrete opportunities to grow the economy, uh, you got to think about what makes your community unique. It, like, this place has the warmest ocean water in Canada. Uh, this place has uh, one of the most productive uh, uh, fisheries in the entire country. Uh, this place has arable land where we can grow the agricultural sector. Uh, increasingly, it's a place that people want to move to. Uh, we are 45 minutes away from a premier undergraduate university and we have uh, a top trade school right here in our community. We have the largest regional hospital in northern Nova Scotia about five minutes from here. Uh, we have uh, a network of schools and municipal services uh, that provide a quality of life and a series of recreational facilities that make this community a place where people would want to live. Um, so the number one uh, strategic advantage I think we have is that this this is a place where people can visit and say hey I would like to have my family live here uh, the workforce in Canada particularly post-COVID is more mobile than it has ever been uh, people who have the opportunity to work in good paying jobs that can choose where they want to live uh, are looking for places like this but we have to let people know we exist um, beyond attracting people who are mobile I think we have to look at what those strategic opportunities are a lot of the factors that I've just outlined make this a perfect opportunity to grow a tourism economy. But we need to embrace that by improving our downtowns, improving our waterfronts, launching uh, supports for tourism operators, and marketing ourselves as a place people want to visit. Uh, there's no reason uh, that the postcards on Nova Scotia should have the waterfront in Lunenburg, but not Pictou. Um, the reality for a lot of folks is that um, the small towns that have those scenic waterfronts don't actually have institutional employers like Michelin or Sobeys where uh, one person may get a job, will have a spouse who can actually find a good paying job in our community as well. Um, I look at the uh, primary uh, resource sector that we have. Uh, the, the value, like for people who don't think about seafood policy, the value we have uh, off our coast uh, is extraordinary. 
Um, when I have traveled internationally, I get a kick out of it. Uh, I travel uh, internationally. Everybody wants to give you a taste of home when you're visiting somewhere else. Uh, when I was in the immigration portfolio, I had uh, a trip, I was visiting France, and they wanted to serve me Nova Scotia lobster with like all these <laughs> fancy fixings. And like, they don't know that you're just supposed to dip it in butter, and that's how, that's, that's how it's best. And, um, and, but, but what they want to do is get their hands on a product uh, that, uh, that they can sell for uh, extraordinary prices. And when I see what, that hap what happens at home, is it's not just um, the, the fish harvesters who are making a living, it's the people who work in the processing facilities, it's the people who are uh, transporting the goods to the new uh, air cargo logistics park that we helped build in, at the Halifax airport to get these products to market. It's injected many millions of dollars into rural communities that are allowing people to grow up where they grew up and raise their kids in those communities as well. So my sense is by embracing our strengths, uh, by demonstrating we're a place that people want to move to, by embracing the tourism opportunity, embracing uh, the primary resources, both in agriculture, uh, the fishery and forestry, uh, we have an opportunity to uh, provide uh, sustainable opportunities that will grow our economy. Um, you can't try to be something you're not if you want to grow your local economy, but if you embrace who you are and show the world that you're a place worth moving to, like there's no stopping us. Uh, this is the kind of place that I think the whole world would be uh, very lucky to live in. And uh, I just feel like I've won a lottery of birth because this is where my parents are from. Well, Sean, we had lots of other questions, but we're going we're gonna to leave it there. I want to thank you for being on the podcast again. You're, you know, you're really a, a great representative for not only your community, but for Nova Scotia, and we really appreciate uh, taking the time to, uh, to really give us better information about the uh, federal government's plans. Thanks okay. so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.